0: For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: You're going to underwrite a lot of deals. You're going to find the deals that really work and you have to pursue those aggressively and you're going to lose a lot of those deals. So just persevering and and making sure that uh, you're sticking to your guns and making sure you're underwriting conservatively, you're going to win the right deal. You just have to persevere and make sure you get through that.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate
2: experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello best ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest Bikron Sandu. Bikron is joining us from Scottsdale, Arizona. He is the CFO, COO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity, a multifamily syndication company. Bikron is a GP and LP on almost 5,000 units across 26 properties. Bikron, thank you for joining us today, and how are you? Hey, Ash, yeah,
1: I'm doing well, thanks. Happy to be here.
2: It's our pleasure to have you. Bikron, before we get started, can you give the Best Ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: Yeah, of course. So my background, Ash, I'm a CPA. I started my career as an auditor working at PwC, which is one of the big four accounting consulting firms. Audited Fortune 100 companies, and help take a a company public here and there. So after about four years of doing that, I moved into management consulting. So helping other companies go public, issue debt, place equity, buy other companies, sell to subsidiaries, really kind of cut my teeth on pro formas and figuring out how businesses are evaluated. And then uh, around 2018, started looking into real estate and, and multifamily in general, and wanted to kind of move into doing something myself when it comes to like acquiring businesses and selling businesses. So caught the real estate bug at that time, read some books and started pursuing the whole real estate dream. And
2: you were getting burned out probably, right? A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Man, those companies turn and burn people and that's right. Um, it, yeah. It, it, if you can stand the heat for so many years, you can mm-hmm. get rewarded way down the road. Good right. for you. Okay. So yeah. you, you realize you were just working a lot and you're probably learning a lot, but you're making other people a lot of money. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: that was a big thing. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: So you decided real estate looks appealing. What was your first step?
1: At the very beginning, I didn't know anything about real estate. I had a condo of my own. My mom had her own house and she was actually just moving to a new house and she was going to rent out her current home. So she was almost like forced into being a landlord and she just had the worst experience. She lives in Fresno, California, not very landlord friendly. So every time you know a tenant would move out, they would essentially just destroy the house pretty much. So all her profits for the year just went away at the end of the year. So I never wanted to get into single family rentals. I thought that's too much risk with just one asset, especially when that asset costs more than a million dollars built in the seventies and you're essentially giving it to a tenant and hoping to God nothing bad happens. So I started doing some analysis here and there read some books, multifamily millions, rich dad, poor dad, you know, the basics and started putting together essentially our forecast for my wife and I like, okay, well, if you want to get into real estate, how do we do it? And where do we want to scale up to? So we established goals, we established timelines for ourselves. And ultimately we met Zach Happenstall and Robert Shefchik, who are the co-founders of Rise 40 Equity alongside myself and just kind of went to town, quit our day jobs. I was doing Multifamily alongside just being a W 2 worker at another firm for a while. But then in April of 2021, decided we're young. If we need to make mistakes, we can make them now. And then uh, just went full time into real estate and just
2: started working full time into buying deals. Ikron, explain to me what it means when you said I was doing multifamily as a W 2.
1: Yeah. So when I was at my management consulting firm, During the day, I was doing work for my company that was helping other companies go public or or buy other companies or sell divisions. And then at 5 p.m. every day, I would come home and open up my real estate computer and then just go in and start analyzing deals or underwriting them. And then I'll probably work until like midnight, maybe even 1 a.m., just trying to get stuff done. So I think I did that for about 12 to 13 months And I figured I had enough savings at the time where I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to dive into real estate, might as well do it full time. So that's when we kind of established Rise48 Equity. I'm an employee under Rise48 Equity, as well as a co-founder. It's an S-Corp. So I handle all of the operational and and financial duties in the company. So I'm a W-2 under the company, but I'm also a,
2: a company owner as well. So I have a vested interest in making sure the company does really well. COO and CFO, so you handle all the operations and all of the finances. What do your partners do?
1: Zach, he's the CEO of the company. He is primarily involved with capital formation and then deal sourcing. So he has built a good rapport with all of the major brokers in the Phoenix MSA. So whenever we have a deal that either comes to market or is going to get traded off market, I can pretty much guarantee you we're going to be one of the first groups to see it. And we essentially get a leg up against other buyers because Zach constantly stays in front of these brokers. So Zach is focused on deal sourcing and on the capital formation side, he's ensuring we're partnering with the right people to buy these deals, with the right LPs, right broker dealers if we work with them. So, I help out a little bit on that end, but I'm mostly underwriting, making sure that deals are going to hit our investor metrics that we're aiming for. But he's primarily kind of guiding the ship, so to speak. And then Robert Shevchik, he's a chief construction officer. He's making sure that our large CapEx projects, like exterior paint or rebranding or putting in amenities, and even the interior CapEx, the unit interior renovations, Everything is on site, getting done on budget on time. So he's kind of overseeing asset management from a construction point of view when we buy these deals.
2: Vikrant, did you guys put together this partnership and this company preemptively, or did you start doing deals together and then it just naturally came together?
1: Yeah, it was a ladder there. So we bought about, I think, six deals before we actually formed Rise 40 at Equity. And, you know, in real estate, especially in multifamily, it's not a single man show. I could not do everything I do alongside Zach and Robert and try to take it all in-house. We would not be where we are today if I was just trying to do it myself. But we met Zach and Robert in early 2019 and we bought our first deal together. We didn't have any LPs in it. It was all our cash. And we really just kind of learned from the ground up Um, on how to do value at multifamily. We did a couple more deals after that together and kind of figured out our roles and responsibilities. And Zach, Robert, and I complement each other perfectly. Zach is great being out there in the field and and getting our name out there. I suck at that. I'm an introvert. So I like sitting in front of the computer and getting stuff done there. And then Robert is great at going on sites and knowing what needs to be done from an actual operations perspective, as opposed to a financial perspective. So we fill each other out very well. And I think in early 2020, we decided to just formally partner up together and and found Rise48 Equity primarily because we didn't want to send out like different branding messages every single time. Zach had his own uh, ZH multifamily. I had my bride investors and then Robert had his own company as well. So we just decided, hey, let's just come together. We're going to buy deals together. We're going to do great. Let's just make it easy for the investors as well.
2: Where did the name come from?
1: 48 is because Arizona is the 48th state in the nation, formerly inducted into this 48th state. And I think there's a thing about state 48 that kind of goes along in Arizona. So we just decided you know, rise 48
2: goes along really well. Got it. Vikram, so in forming your company, it just naturally came together because you had experience working with your partners on a number of deals. I've done both where I've sat down, had people lay out a company formation, and it never takes off, right? Mm-hmm. Or I've just naturally started working with people. And all of a sudden, we form an entity and do more deals. And oh, my God, it's incredible. What are your thoughts on that overall? Should people sit down in front of a whiteboard and determine their company and the structure and the roles? Or should they just start doing deals together and working together?
1: That's a great question. And I think if you look at like the startup landscape,
2: right? look
1: at all these tech companies that start up and look at all these other companies that go on. You don't see the CEO and the CFO come together, put together a company chart and then launch a company. It's almost always like, okay, we're going to build a great product or provide a great service and we'll build a company along the way. So I read this book called The E-Myth and in there, once you have a company starting to get going, you're going to go through a lot of growing pains. You're going to have to figure out that, hey, you actually now need an HR manager because you have 30 plus employees and they need benefits information and all that. So what Zach, Robert and I did was we looked at the company after we had started it. And, you know, after we started getting some admin tasks put on us, we put together a org chart where we just kind of filled out like, hey, we need a CFO. Who's great for that? That's Bikron. We need a CEO. Who's good at that? Who's a good chief investment officer? That's Zach. So we started putting our names everywhere. And after that org chart was built out, we started hiring for that work chart. So we needed an acquisitions manager. We hired our acquisitions manager. So Zach and I kind of got out of that role and started doing more revenue generating activities as opposed to company building activities. But back to your question, it's more of, you're going to have to experiment with who you have chemistry with, I feel like, before you come together and incorporate a business and start working together. Because everyone's going to say, oh yeah, we're a perfect match. There's nothing that could go wrong. And then two months later, you can't stand the other person, right? So it's a dating game for a partnership. So once you are working together, I think that's when you start
2: building the company is probably the better way to go. Yeah, that is great advice. Thank you for that. What were some of the growing pains that you guys had to overcome early on? I think
1: one of the biggest things was we're all local in Phoenix. So we're about 40 minutes to 45 minutes away from all our assets. So we can easily travel out there. The first thing that we had done was we hired our director of asset management, who's our VP of operations, Kaylee Chris. Kaylee was our regional with our third-party property management company when we used to work with them. And we could keep tabs on it day to day, but driving everywhere, making sure all the construction was happening, making sure our budgets were being met, was just taking too much time out of our own time to find new deals. So that's the first person that we hired was someone to oversee our operations. So Kaylee... She does a great job meeting with the vendors, getting our DD done, making sure we have bids ready to go the day we close escrow so that we have a timeline established on how we need to renovate, what we need to renovate. And then the second person that we hired was Brady, who was our transactions associate at the time and now acquisitions manager. And as you know, Ash, there's a ton of paperwork that goes into buying a deal. It's not just like a simple signature and you're good to go on a PSA. There's a lot of lender requirements escrow requirements and you need to make sure you do your due diligence. So having someone to kind of do the back end acquisition activity really kind of freed up Zach as well. So we were able to kind of focus more on buying more deals. So I think those are the first key hires that we had that really kind of helped us out grow substantially. But now we're just kind of focused on building out the team, building out the back office and making sure no one's over capacity and burning out essentially.
2: And how much pain do you undergo before you hire somebody? So, when you hired your acquisitions person, were you guys just inundated and overwhelmed? Or was it one of those things where, hey, listen, I don't like doing that. Let's just hire that out?
1: No. Our philosophy is we want to be experts in every aspect of the business. Whether it's Zach being an expert in getting the DD done, or me being an expert in the underwriting phase, but we're not going to just hire someone out and expect them to do something that we don't know how to do. So we want to make sure we're experts, and then when we hire someone out, that person has appropriate training to do what we do naturally. So it was at a point where, say, Zach was working till like one or two a.m. getting lender docs out and getting all the deals closed, essentially, and at that. point we decided okay well zach you need to focus more on finding more deals not so much closing the current ones because it's just now paperwork so that's where we hired our transactions associate at the time where his responsibility was to make sure the paperwork or the admin on the back end is getting done but it wasn't so much zach doesn't want to do it and we're just going to hire somebody it's more of okay zach knows how to do it he's an expert in it he's trained the person and now he can comfortably trust the transaction associate to do his
2: job and and focus more on other activities. That's a great philosophy. All right. 5,000 units across 26 properties. Geographically, where are those? They're all in the Phoenix MSA. So we're focused there primarily. All right. Wait a minute. So Phoenix is overheated. It's hard (laughs) to find deals in Phoenix. There's no good deals. The cap rates are too low. Help me overcome a lot of these objections that people have.
1: Yeah, of course. So a lot of people don't know this, but Phoenix is the fifth largest MSA in the nation, and there's over four million people in here. There's over four hundred thousand multifamily units in the Phoenix MSA. As you mentioned, we've acquired about five thousand units in total, so we're barely over one percent there in, in terms of total absorption on Rise48 Equity side. It is definitely very competitive. I'll tell you that as well. We typically buy deals between 50 to $150 and we're primarily competing against hedge funds, private equity, institutional equity, like BlackRock or Tides Equities and KKR, et cetera. But it's definitely very competitive. So kind of staying in front of the broker, kind of showcasing your, your ability to close these deals is extremely important. So every deal we've ever gotten under contract, we've closed it. We've never had any issues. We've never retraded any of the sellers. So we have a very good rapport with the broker. So whenever a deal comes online, That relationship aspect really kind of kicks into gear because when a deal is available for sale, we're essentially one of the first ones to see it. And it takes time. I think the first deal that we syndicated, I had underwritten about 70 deals before that first one actually came across. And a lot of the deals are just going to be like way off. You're never going to get close to the purchase price. And someone's going to buy it for that purchase price. You're going to look at yourself and like, wait, am I doing something wrong? (laughs) So, whenever those key moments come up where we can get to a reasonable purchase price and we can deploy the equity for it, we pursue it hard. So, we'll go hard day one for earnest money that we need to put up. We'll make sure we do our due diligence on the front end. So, we'll contact our trusted vendors for HVACs, the exterior plumbing the refinishing, just kind of get our budget in order before we actually go on-site. So when we go on-site, it's more of just a truing up of our budget for contingencies. It's not so much we go into a deal and then figure out, oh no, we didn't budget for this. What happened? So it takes a lot of due diligence on the front end and takes a lot of relationship building
0: to make sure you can take a deal down. We'll get back to the show. with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Rock competing
2: against institutions, are they just more difficult to deal with as a seller? And I love what you said. You've never retraded a deal, which best ever listeners just basically means you never went in at one price and try to get it lower later. And you've never not closed on a deal that you had under contract to amazing attributes that I think very few people can hold. So is that what gives you the edge against these big institutions that have unlimited capital?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think our track record really speaks for us. When we go in an offer, because you have to understand these institutional capital, they're going to write a check for 40, $50 million and buy a deal. There's just one check and no one has to worry about anything else. The problem is there's a lot of processes in place that they have to go through to write that check. It's not so simple as one person touring the deal and that person's a decision maker. So the edge that we have is we're syndicating everything. So our investors are investing with us and we're going out and deploying that capital. But with that comes a control that we have. So Zach, Robert, and I are essentially the people that need to sign off on the deal. Whereas for institutional or private equity, they'll have an acquisition manager come out tour the deal, underwrite it, say it works, they'll offer on it. But then someone else from that institutional side needs to come out and look at the deal as well. The decision maker needs to still come out. So when we have these seller interviews that we have to go on, we essentially tell them, yeah, we are syndicators. We're raising money from retail investors high W-2 earners, high net worth investors. We do not have private equity, which kind of goes against us because they want someone who has 100% surety of close, not so much, okay, well, are you going to go raise your money? Are you going to close or not? But uh, it really helps us out the track record. But then the thing that really kind of sells them is, hey, we underwrote the deal. We are the decision makers and we're going to move forward and we've never not closed a deal. So you don't have to worry about some New York hedge fund guy coming out and looking at the deal after they get under contract. We're going to go hard day one with our earnest money. So, you know, we're going to close. And that really kind of sells our company to the sellers.
2: What kind of information do you have access to before you put your earnest money down?
1: That's a great question. So from a deal perspective, we're looking at all the financials that the brokers are providing. We do a rental comp study for all the deals as well. So our asset management team, they essentially go out there. We'll send them like, hey, we're looking at this deal. What type of pro farmer rents do you think we can get? So they'll run a co star report and a real page report for all the comparable properties in that area. And we're primarily looking at properties that have renovated units because that's really where our business plan kind of aims at. So they'll put together a rental comp study, kind of determine what the pro farmer rents are. We'll secret shop these comps like we're visiting them, we're looking at what type of amenities they have, what type of other kind of income that they might charge, like washer, dryer, charge or pet fees, et cetera. And we'll build that all into our model. So we know going in from a financial perspective, these are the ones we can achieve. And this is the total cost it's going to take us to upgrade the interiors and renovate the asset. And then from a contingency perspective, we talk to our vendors. We say, Hey, we're buying this deal. It was built in the eighties. The broker told us around 40% of the HVACs are replaced. 60% have not in your estimate. How much do you think it's going to cost to essentially over the next five years, replace these HVACs and get us in a good place. And they'll give us bids just kind of like a verbal bid. And then we'll underwrite that in, into our deal so that we know going in, If our CapEx budget is say $5 million for a deal after DD, it will range between four and a half to five and a half. So we're never going into a deal with a CapEx budget of say 2 million and then coming out at 10 million. We have it very well dialed because we'll lose it essentially if we can't perform.
2: So you have access to a tremendous amount of information before your offer is put in and your earnest money is hard. Are there any kickouts where you can get your earnest money back?
1: Yeah, there are. There's standard language. If the phase one comes back not clean or there's some sort of a zoning issue where a title can't put an exception around it, we'll get our earnest money back for those reasons. But when it comes to due diligence, we have to make sure that we're comfortable going in. We can't kick out if like say the chiller is going to go down. We have to make sure we ask our questions on the front end instead of waiting until DD comes back before we do that.
2: Interesting. So I am a non-residential commercial investor and in our world, we just make offers and then we get access to a lot of the information Yeah, and all the due diligence is in the back end. There's never, ever hard earnest money on day one. Right, It's usually 45, 60 days out. So thank you for explaining that to me. And now I understand yeah, that you have a tremendous amount of information to make an educated offer. Right now, there's a lot of institutions buying. When you're buying $50, $100 million apartment buildings, are you buying from individuals or institutions right now?
1: That's a great question as well. So it's, it's kind of a mix, right? So when uh, we buy from an institutional capital or institutional companies like True America or Benedict Canyon Equities, we have to really sell ourselves because we're not institutional and they need to get comfortable with us. We do buy from individuals who bought the assets back in 2000, 2005. They're not really aware of where the market's at, so we don't have to sell as hard to them. But we're buying from a mix of institutional, private equity, mom and pop. And then you're also buying from syndicators as well, who are essentially doing what we're doing. Then we can make the deal work better
2: under our model versus them. Is it hard to get a good price from an institutional seller?
1: (laughs) Sometimes it is. Yes. You almost have to make sure you're offering the right price. And we have our underwriting model that I've developed internally, looking at other models and kind of back-testing it. And uh, I don't deviate from that model very significantly. If we need to push up the purchase price a little bit here and there, there's some wiggle room that levers I can pull to make it move. But if you're asking for like a 10% or a 20% increase in purchase price, that's not going to happen. So we've lost, I would say like 90, 95% of the deals we pursue. And some of them we've lost by only like a hundred thousand or $200,000 on twenty, thirty, $40 million purchase price. And it's just,
2: you can't make the number work. So it's not going to happen. Interesting. And you know that you're a hundred thousand dollars away from getting the deal done. Yeah. We find
1: yeah. out on the back end because, so Arizona. So, so like, okay. you don't
2: have an opportunity to come back to the table with an extra hundred, you find out much later.
1: Yeah. So sometimes okay. the broker would tell us that, Hey, they're going to sell it for the X amount. Arizona open disclosure state. So when the deals do close, we know exactly what it's sold for. So we can compare it to our underwriting and where we got to essentially. So we'll find out one way or another.
2: And your value add prospect is basically getting rents closer to market because you look for already renovated units. Is that correct?
1: Sometimes. So we'll make sure that the properties we're going after already have some units that are renovated so that we know that the market rent is achievable. Sometimes the units are 100% classic The owner has owned it for 20, 30, 40 years, hasn't done anything major to it. So those require a significant bump in rents, and we make sure we get them. We've renovated over 565 units to date, and we've either achieved or exceeded our performance rents on every single one of those units. So we have a very thorough understanding of where the rents need to go. So they're either already being achieved, but we essentially have to do the renovations or continue renovations
2: at the site to get the market rents got it. And I want to ask you a question, but I want any best ever listener out there that's driving to kind of brace yourself for this. But Bikram, what kind of cap rates are you buying right now?
1: (laughs) If you asked me about six months ago, it was around two and a half to three cap. It has come up a little bit. So between three to three and a half cap, it really kind of depends how much value out there is. From a stabilized perspective, I can tell you that in year one, We'll get to around five and a half to six cap after we essentially implement a better operational strategy, but going in caps are a little tough.
2: <laughs> Two and a half percent cap yeah. rate. Your loan is at three, three and a half, I'm assuming. Yeah. And how soon can you start paying investors?
1: That's a great question. So in our underwriting, we don't leverage deals up to 80% LTC. We'll pare back the leverage because we know we're in a negative leverage there our deals are primarily between 60 to 70% leverage, more closer to 60 sometimes. And we'll raise up some reserves on the front end as well. So when we start going out to investors, we'll tell them on the front end, we want to make sure that the asset is onboarded correctly. We haven't identified any operational issues that'll need some reserves, but if we don't need anything, we'll start paying out investors within 90 days of takeover and most of that distribution sometimes made up of operational reserves that we're letting go of because we don't need it but we want to make sure the property is cash flow positive there's no major issues before we start doing that so we don't never had those issues yeah
2: and what are the typical returns to your investors
1: we tell every investor we underwrite on a 5 year horizon you should not have an expectation that we're going to sell within the next 12 to 18 months and in that five year horizon, we want to try to get you at least to a 2x equity multiple. You'll have lower cash flow because these are value add deals. So the first couple of years, you'll have maybe three and a half to four and a half percent cash flow on average. But as we stabilize the asset that cash flow increases. And uh, overall, we want to get out of the deal as fast as possible. So of the 34 assets that we've acquired, we've sold 10 of those assets and uh, all of them have exceeded our expectations. From an investor level, I think our average hold period is about 18 months and uh, we've essentially doubled or more all the investor capital at that point uh, in those 18 months. But we tell investors past performance is not indicative of future performance. So temper expectations, five-year holds.
2: And then do you have an issue where investors are saying, Hey, look, I'm getting a seven, 8% pref over there. Mm-hmm. How are you guys only going to give me 4% for a couple of years?
1: We have investors who ask that question, and it depends on which market you're in, right? So if you're in the Midwest, where you don't have as much explosive growth as you might have in Phoenix, which I think last year was the fifth largest MSA in terms of growth, I think had more than 80,000 people move here. I think that was the fourth largest or fastest growing city. In those Midwest markets, you're going to have higher cash flow because there's not a huge bump on the back end when you sell the deal. In Phoenix, it's more of a value add strategy because when you do add value, your taxes are not increasing or staying in line with the increase on your revenue side. So when we sell, we can actually get a bigger pop when we sell the deal. So our operational expense ratio is closer to 35, 40%. And then in three years down the road, it might be closer to 30% because our revenue is just significantly outpacing our expenses. Whereas in the Midwest, you'll have taxes that get revalued. So your income goes up by 20%. Your taxes might go up by 20%. So it keeps that OPEX ratio around the same level. So you can't get that huge growth on the back end when you sell the deal. All
2: right. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Yep. Now, Phoenix, I've forgotten how many thousands of people move there every day, how many new jobs there is, and everything's in its favor. What happens if that spigot turns off? Have you done any modeling to where if rents don't go up anymore, interest yeah. rates climb significantly, there are significant job losses? What does that do when you're on razor thin margins initially?
1: That's a great question. Starting on the rental growth. So Phoenix in the past decade has grown about five to 6% per year in rental growth. That's annual 6% growth in rental income or the market rents, I should say. And that's from RealPage. That's data that we pulled and analyzed. And then over the past couple of years, rents have gone up by around 20 to 26% for both years, essentially. So on a T12 basis, we've seen significant rental growth. In our model, we assume a stabilized rental growth of about 4% in the model. So coming from 20% down to 4% is a significant downturn in and of itself. And it's much less than inflation. Inflation, I think last month was around 8.6%. So we're assuming a rental growth of less than half that in our model, which is really not feasible, but that's how we go out and, and stabilize the rents. Interest rate side, there's a lot of talk about rates going up and we've seen it go up significantly. We're typically modeling in about 100 to 150 basis point increase in interest rates in the first couple of years of us holding the deal. So if we're going into a deal with, say, a 4% interest rate, we're assuming by the end of year two, our interest rate's now at 5.5%. So we're making sure that we're building that into our model. And then we also buy interest rate caps. So if it does go above what we expect, we have that back-end protection and we pay significantly for some of these caps. So we make sure we build in that surety on the back-end. And let's say there are job losses tomorrow, there is population increases are declining. Well, you need to understand like the Phoenix landscape as well, right? So Phoenix is just more than 80 to 100,000 people moving here every single year for the past five years. This is the first year where they're building a lot of units and they're building around 33,000 units this year. And you can imagine with all these households moving here that there's just not enough supply to go around to kind of absorb all these new people moving out here. With the house pricing going where it's going, it's just getting harder and harder to buy a house. So we're becoming essentially a renter nation in this country with just not enough supply. I think we're very well insulated against a significant downturn. I don't see rents declining over time. You might have places where you have to do concessions in rougher areas just to get tenants to move in. But I think rental growth is going to slow down. It has to. You can't have a 20% increase every year. You're going to run to an affordability crisis. But from a downturn perspective, I think Phoenix is very well insulated. There's a diversity of job growth here. It's not all focused on, say, construction, which got hit really hard in 07, 08. I think at that time, Phoenix was 20% in construction. Now it's close to 5 to 10%. So it's a diverse job economy and it really
2: helps. Yeah. Even with all the positives, you're still underwriting quite conservatively.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Bikram, what is your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: I would say perseverance is key. We don't live in the 80s anymore where we can just offer on a deal and it's a 10 cap and you're going to buy it and it's going to be great. No issues. You're going to underwrite a lot of deals. You're going to find the deals that really work and you have to pursue those aggressively and you're going to lose a lot of those deals. So just persevering and and making sure that uh, you're sticking to your guns and making sure you're underwriting conservatively, you're going to win the right deal. You just have to persevere
2: and make sure you get through that. Bikran, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, hit me. All right, what's the best ever book you recently read? I would say
1: the E-Myth is really good. That really helps us kind of build our company. The other one that I really liked was Atomic Habits by James Clear. He talks a lot about putting habits in place, but not trying to go from A to Z, but taking little steps here and then watching over the next six to 12 months, how you can get to A to Z slowly. What's the best ever way you like to give back? We donate to a lot of charities on our end. We want to make sure we support Phoenix as a whole and as well as the country as a whole. One thing that I do personally is we do try to empower our staff a lot. So we're hiring employees. Some of them are very young. They're kind of starting their career. So you want to make sure that they're being empowered and they're growing professionally. So we try to let them make some key decisions, kind of help them understand the rights and wrongs. So we're trying to build up our company very efficiently and we're trying to do it so that we're not micromanaging everybody. We're more just kind of letting people make their mistakes and learn from those mistakes on their end.
2: And Bikwin, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: You can visit us at www.rise48equity.com. Um, That's our company website to learn more about us. My email is Bikran at at rise48equity.com. So feel free to reach out, set up a call, happy to talk about our journey and how you can partner with us.
2: Bitcoin, I got to thank you for sharing your time with us today, telling us about your journey from going from a CPA, working for Pricewaterhouse, probably working hundreds of hours and (laughs) finding real estate, growing an incredible company and giving us a lot of insights into the institutional quality multifamily assets. So again, thank you for your time today.
1: Yeah, of course. No, thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe and have a best ever day.